My name is Ryan Miner. This is a Minor Detailed podcast. We are live on Facebook. Check me out on iTunes and CastBox and iHeartRadio. Tonight, Jill Carter, she's a state senator from Baltimore. She is running for Congress in the 7th District Special Election. She joins me tonight. She's going to talk a little bit about her campaign. We had Jill on previously. Uh, Senator Carter, hey, thanks for coming on tonight. I know you're busy, but I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me back. You bet. What's going on? How's this? I, you had a busy day today in the Senate. I know that the General Assembly, they overrode some of Governor Hogan's vetoes. I believe five to be exact. You made some news today in the Baltimore Sun where they quoted you, and I'll just read this from the Sun's article. State Senator Joe P. Carter, a Baltimore Democrat, was the lead sponsor of the Ban the Box legislation, which would limit employers how they can discuss job applicants' criminal records. So you guys in the Senate and the House, they overrode the governor's veto. So you were chiefly responsible for this legislation in the Senate. Tell me about that. What happened? Well, the, the legislation is really just one teeny step toward being able to give people opportunities that have criminal records, everything from just a minor arrest to an actual conviction or people that are returning citizens. And so to be honest with you, like, I really don't understand uh, any op- opposition to it. It sounds like all like smoke screens, but at any rate, all the bill does is just require that an employer give someone, well, that, you know, an initial application doesn't require a person to reveal whether they have a criminal record or not. And then um, once the person is given an, abort, given an interview uh, based on the application, it's at that time that you can, the employer can ask about the criminal record. And the, the reason for that is we just don't want people just eliminated at the outset just because they say, yes, I've been arrested. Yes, I've been convicted. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... I believe you need 29 votes in the Senate to override the governor's veto. What was what was the governor's response, or rather, what was the governor's reasoning for passing uh, this or vetoing the legislation from the outset in last session? Uh, there were a few points that I recall reading. One of them was this could well. One of them made no sense to me. It said that it could actually have a detrimental effect on. Um, people applying for jobs and I, I didn't really understand that the other one was um it could delay could cause delays in the employment pro- process and be a burden to employers hmm. um it, it really was not anything i mean so some of the arguments like made on the floor were things such as you know we have a right to know whether there's a record but you know there's already um the, so, so first of all um discrimination law already provides that an employer can't discriminate because of a record unless there's a nexus between um, the job at hand and what the record is. So, you you know, you if you have a child sexual abuse conviction, then you would be barred from being able to work with children. That's reasonable. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's already like checks and balances in the law. All this does is say that um, and not even a small company. So, like, you know, um, you know, Mindy, the trucker, wouldn't be ha- even. This wouldn't even apply for a person that has like a business with three employees. Mm-hmm. This is fifteen employees and more, and it just says that you know you have to humanize someone, give them an opportunity, and, and assess them on more than just the record before making a decision. Mm-hmm. So, so you know the arguments about oh we need to know we have a right to know. There's nothing stopping anyone from knowing about the record. It just says you can't inquire at the outset before you look at other factors. Okay. So what? A, well, Senator, what about if after someone is taken through the interview process, they're brought back in, and then they have to fill out on a form 
they uh, that they do indeed have a criminal record. Look, of course, we know that having a criminal record should not exclude anyone from a a job. And depending on, of course, what that previous crime is and then factors of how long it's been and what the extent to was, whether it was a violent crime. So I think there's a lot to factor into that. However, if you were to bring the interview, the applicant back in and the employer then says, I'm sorry, you're not going to work or you, you can't pass a background check, um, would then would there be any legislation that protect the applicant then? I think we go in steps, but a couple of things. One, so under this bill that we passed today, overrode the veto on, if, if an employer does violate the law and inquire about inquires about a, a criminal background prior to granting an interview, then the first time is sort of like a warning. Uh, you know, you can't do that again from the, the commissioner of labor. And the second offense, uh, there would be a fine. And this is all contingent upon an applicant actually complaining. And, you know, most applicants really, frankly, don't complain because Sure. Uh, people are woefully ignorant of the law because the law already exists in Baltimore, Montgomery County, and Prince George's County. Um, the, the second aspect of what you're saying is that um, it's no violation of the law, you know, if they ask about it after there's been a face-to-face interview. Um, in Baltimore City, actually, it's the more stringent requirement. Uh, they can't ask until there's been a conditional offer of employment. Hmm. But at any rate, this is a lighter bill here in the state. And, for, you know, it pertains to private employers. It's already the law for, for government. Um, the answer to your question is, I think we do go in stages because I think there are still um, de- declinations of employment based on criminal records all the time where there's no real nexus between the record and the employment. And I think that we should probably come out, you know, baby steps. It was a struggle to get this back. Yeah. But I think that the future should involve uh, legislation that prohibits uh, discrimination based on the criminal record. That's what I believe. Well, I, I mean, of course, I know, I know there's exceptions, but I mean, just first of all, there should never be, I think, a prohibition or discrimination in employment just because there's an arrest, period. Sure. Conviction is something else, and then you just have to weigh all the factors. Well, I agree. I mean, based on when the crime was committed, how long ago, what their rehabilitation was, what their reentrance was, if they were in incarcerated. There's so many factors, and criminal justice reform is not a limited to one party. It it has taken on a bipartisan effort, and that's that's progress in our country. Do you see a, a federal ban in the box? Should you be elected to Congress? Oh, I would love to push for a federal ban in the box. I want to stress to you, because a few years ago, when um, we adopted Ban the Box just in Baltimore City, and when the state in 2013, I think it was, or, or sometime around there, we did Ban the Box for the state, the state government, um, I always thought, this is so not enough. And it's not. But it's a step in the direction, so I would love to start with the federal Ban the Box, because federal, we need, um, we need criminal justice reform and opportunities on the federal level as well. And just to, you know, kind of drive home why this is so critically important, when we talk about crime and we talk about um, the state of Baltimore and other places, uh, we have between 9,000 and 10,000 people returning from incarceration into the, to Maryland communities every year. And in addition to those that have been incarcerated, we have other people that are never incarcerated but are arrested and or convicted. And maybe they um, aren't, maybe they're not convicted, so they just have an arrest, or maybe they are convicted, but they get a probation or something. So all of these people have stains that often prohibit employment. And there's a myriad of data that says 
that uh, that um, those people that remain unemployed within three years are more likely to recidivate. Well, now that the veto is overridden, um, I'm be interesting to see what happens on the state and then federal level. So you're running in the seventh district congressional race. You got quite a number of opponents, and this is a pretty big field. Uh, the Democrat is largely expected to win this race. And we had you on before. We talked about what was happening um, a, a few months back. But you are only a few days out. The election, the special election, that is, is February the 4th. So uh, you've been getting some some pretty decent endorsements. You've been you've been endorsed by Our Revolution. You got endorsed by uh, former Maryland gubernatorial candidate Ben Jealous. That that was an interesting one. Um, you know, look, Ben Ben Jealous is as as you were a supporter of his when he ran two years ago, and you you helped him in the the general election. So um, is is he still politically viable in Maryland? You think? I think so. I mean, he won 23 out of 24 jurisdictions when he was the Democrat nominee. And frankly, he was the only Democrat nominee. So um, I would say that, you know, in in some respects, he's the most significant Democrat uh, across the state. Um, But I mean, you know, who knows? Every uh, there are powerful forces in this race. Um, You know, for example, one of my opponents, one of the one of the people running the former congressman, I mean, he hasn't been elected to anything in, in over 23 years, but he still has, uh, you know, a lot of uh, affinity toward him and um, a, a great name recognition. Um, so for the one thing, I think, yes, on Ben, he definitely has name recognition. And two, I think that, um, you know, most Democrats uh, like him and certainly progressive Democrats like him. And even those that didn't, hopefully they're beginning to see the difference between what is going on now with the governor and the difference we would have if Ben Jealous had been elected. For example, the the battle of Kerwin and, and so many mm. other things. Well, that's a big battle, and that's a lot of money, and it's it's going to be a fascinating issue to unfold this legislative sh- session. It's on the tips of every legislator's mind, and coming up a, with a way to pay for it is going to be interesting. Hey, look, you know, um, you are, you, you've been a longtime state delegate. You have been in the state Senate um, for a few years now. You out, you've beat the, the hell out of the democratic machine in Annapolis. You're, you haven't always been the first pick and you're running against some entrenched people. And, and I say that fairly because look, you, you're one of the top three candidates. I see that in in how this race is unfolding you are the progressive choice you are the most progressive choice in this election in the seventh district you have a former congressman kwaise mfume running who uh was the uh congressman before elijah cummings who passed away last october and then you have the the late congressman's widow maya rockamore cummings and i have to say as a and a neutral observer of this race, I don't live in the seventh district. I live in the sixth district, where it's pretty heavily gerrymandered, as you know. Um, I, I got to tell you, watching this race unfold, I see Jill Carter is having the best ground game, the most ardent supporters, the most activated people who show up, go out, knock the doors, and really kind of push that message, that progressive message out. I see Maya Rockamore Cummings. It seems to me that she's more interested in spending time on the view than she is in the seventh district. What's up with that? 
I don't know. I think it's just the background and the culture. I mean, she doesn't come from a legislative background at all. She kind of comes from a place where she's been in the spotlight because of being married to Elijah Cummings and, you know, working on Capitol Hill. But I did think that it's indicative of the different type of congresswomen that we would be. Um, I, I, I pride myself on, and this is true, I, I just came from a meet and greet in Park Heights a little while ago. And I was talking to the the residents about um, how I wanted to be like Perrin Mitchell, not mm-hmm. only effective in the Congress in Washington, but I wanted to come back home as he did and walk the streets and, you know, meet people where they are and try to lift them up the way that, you know, that's the example I had of, of what I thought was a great congressman. Um, it seems to me that um, Maya Rockmore Cummings is running a very consultant-driven campaign. She might have a lot of money. She might have a lot of outside resources. But do you get a sense that some of the other candidates are connecting? Are they uh, are they connecting with voters? Because I see your team. And in fairness, look, I follow the social media. I know that social media is not everything. And I know no. it's not it, it, uh, Twitter. T- political Twitter is not some is mostly not the reality of what's happening back in the district. But they see you. You're a state senator. They know your face. You're out knocking doors. You're coming home back from session, um, and you're trying to get as much as much voter time as possible. Um, I got a question for you. Uh, the last forum that you did, maybe or two forums ago, it was kind of boring, and I I watched it, and you guys are pretty much all on the same plane, have similar ideas for policy. There's no questioning that you uh, and your colleagues are not going to be in support of the president's policies, that you're going to go champion a, a demo, democratic policies. But then you had a little bit of a disagreement with uh, the former congressman, Kwaise Mfume. Tell me about what happened there. I wasn't there to see it, but I did I did read about it. Yeah, so actually, I think it was more than a couple ago. You know, I have to just digress for a second. Please. There are so many forums, okay? There are so <laughs> many forums. There's a so lot. Many forums. There's a lot. And, and they are hard. They're getting very hard because, first of all, I'm just not a person that likes really to repeat myself over and over again. Like, this is the same thing. It's the truth, but it's, like, hard to keep saying the same thing over again mm-hmm. every day. But at any rate, um, that's what I try to stress actually at the forums. I say that, you know, there's some wonderful people in this race, people of varying experiences, um, some good people. And people, I used to laugh when I like some really good people. <laughs> people like, I hope I'm in that group of some good. But... A lot of us are going to say similar things because we're Democrats and we do share similar views. But I will say that what I constantly stress is the difference is, you know, not merely that I I say and other people say that I'm the only true progressive. It's the track record of standing up for what is right. It's the track record of being in a legislative body where there is tremendous pressure to be in favor with leadership to go along with whatever the powerful forces want you to do. And my consistent track record is even when it's difficult, I won't go along with something that I don't think is right. And there's no one in this race that can, that can say that. Now, I mean, people have to decide whether they think that's something of value or not. I think it is something of value because when you, when you resist the mediocre, you know, missions of the vision of the establishment, that's when you're able to use to gain leverage to, to move uh, the needle in a, in a better direction. And so I think that matters. I think having a core set of principles matters. I think, you know, you bring your core set of principles to the legislative body 
but you don't let the legis- legislative de- body define what your principles are. And with all due respect to Feisty and Fume, who's always had an iconic name for as long as I can possibly remember, he's he, people like him a tremendous amount. He's a wonderful uh, orator. Uh, when he was in the legislative body, uh, there are a number of instances where that isn't um, what he did. He did not use his uh, his power of in that position to push the needle, in my view, in a direction to further the interests of his, the, his constituency and the people that need the most. And the 94 crime bill is one thing, and I think people have pointed out some other bills. Um, so that's the difference. Um, again, uh, there's other legislators that are nice. But we already know that, like, you know, um, the the leader in the House that's in the race, for example, um, all he's ever done is, uh, you know, try to win a stand with leadership. He's never taken, never one time in life taken an independent stand on anything. <laughs> well, that's 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 quite a uh, a difference. I mean, you have distinguished yourself in the race and you're not afraid to go up against a political machine you're not afraid to take on uh the traditional politics of annapolis and i'll have to give you credit and your team credit you must have set the standard and the pace uh and the ethos before you jumped into this campaign you have always availed yourself to any media outlet i don't know about good old red maryland but uh you have you were the only candidate i mean your team reached out to me uh i have tried several times to get your some of your opponents to come on and i was ignored outright by maya rockamore cummings kwaise's team uh, had set up a a thing and then they canceled and this happened a couple of times and uh some of the other candidates reached back out terry hill said that she just didn't have time but then goes on another podcast which is interesting to me, but nonetheless, uh, Senator Carter, uh, I, I appreciate this seriously. It means a lot, and uh, I'm I, I know that my audience is not as big as the Baltimore Suns, but there is an audience. People are listening, and they're going to pay attention, and they're going to pay attention to your message. So, thanks for availing yourself to the press, and I and so, that, that matters. Thank you, but you know, uh, one day I'm gonna. I, I feel like I'm always incrementally telling my story because I'm. I'm Lately, I seem like I'm always in a campaign, so I'm always like giving tidbits. But uh, you may know or may not know that uh, for most of my career, all I had was what is could be characterized as either smaller or non-mainstream or alternative media. Because for the entire time that I was in the House of Delegates, I was blackballed in the Baltimore Sun. Oh, I know. I know. Well, you know, I. What else did I have? I mean, I had social media. And, you know, podcasts and radio and that sort of thing. Well, here's a picture for you. If you and I sit down in the, the second floor of Harry Brown's is where I podcast live. I I will I'll, I'll give you an example. When I walk upstairs and I'm carrying my briefcase and I'm carrying my suitcase full of podcasting equipment. And then you see the Annapolis press corps machine and they virtually if if they could if they could throw a drink at my face, they probably would. <laughs> the, the 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 amount of nasty glares that i i get from the uh the old machine operators um it's quite funny but i'm doing my thing and the message is getting out and uh i'm i'm building up this audience so i'm having a lot of fun um to their chagrin so um you know as far as i as far as i can say is that uh they they can they can get on the uh, they can enjoy the podcast because i know they listen so let me ask <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you this question i recently read an op-ed in the baltimore sun 
And here's what it said. If Infume's past is fair game, what about Jill Carter's 2019 vote protecting child abusers from civil lawsuits? And do you want to respond to this? I don't know if you have already, but... Um, it's so interesting. If you, When I was answering a question before, I don't know if you noticed where I sort of like paused for a second. Yeah. Because just as I was answering, someone sent it to me. I haven't read it yet. Okay. But, um, you know, uh, that's just so crazy and ridiculous. And I'll explain why. Um, I don't mind explaining it all. Okay. First of all, I always vote my conscience and do what I think is right. And I really think this has been mischaracterizing. So often, so often legislation that is put forward is um, something that really sounds good that we can identify with, and it it, it, it draws on the public and legislators' emotions, but, you know, the mechanics may not always be what we think. So, I mean, people can agree or not agree, but my rationale is this. In Maryland, we so this, what, what this is is the, um, the, the bill that would allow, would remove all, any and all statute of limitations on civil lawsuits um, for child sex abuse. So right now, if a child is sexually abused in Maryland at any age, 3, 7, 17, yeah. that person generally has, um, until um, I think age 21 plus uh, 5 or 10 years, I'm, I'm not sure if I really remember, but um, if they don't recall it until um, you know they're 21, then they have until age 38. That's for a civil lawsuit. And this is not just Catholic Church lawsuits. This is any sexual abuse claim. Right. Now, in Maryland also, there is zero statute of limitations on a criminal complaint. And so there's, there's no, 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 no limit on a criminal charge. You can file it at any time. Of course, it's difficult the longer time that goes by because basically, you know, it's hard to, to prove a case after a long time. Civil or criminal. Um, what the bill would have done is say no statute limitations. So like, you know, it happens when you're three, I'm over 50, I could file the lawsuit. Um, I don't agree with that. I, I think that we should have limitations periods on civil actions. But I also feel that if we're going to completely, and it's unprecedented, it's unprecedented. There's no other area of law, civil law, where there is zero limitations, you know, it's in perpetuity. Um, so that's really just a, a contradiction to like all other civil law. But I feel strongly that if we're going to consider removing a statute of limitations altogether, no statute, no limitations, then we should look beyond one this one category of cases. I think we should look to things like uh, permanent childhood brain damage and other very serious things. So that, that was my whole point. And, you know, when a bill dies one year, it doesn't mean it's never going to pass. I, I don't think I would agree with the bill as it was this year either. But, you know, um, I'm happy to sit down and talk to, with anyone that, that would want to if they want to look at a compromise. I would even consider a longer statute of limitations beyond age 38. But I, I just do not agree that there should be no limitations whatsoever. Hmm. Well, David Plymer, um who is the oh, David Clymer has been after me for like 10 years. I don't know what is seriously David Clymer has routinely just selected things to write about me in a negative way. I don't know what his motivation is, but he's done it multiple times. It's crazy. And what I mean is like, I remember one time when I left the um, city government to become the Senator mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
you know, he didn't even know the details, like what was really going on. He chose to write something crazy like this. Well, House Speaker Bush um, had the integrity to become the deputy of whatever agency that he worked for in Anne Arundel County while he was speaker. So Jill Carter, um, clearly, I mean, something along the lines, like she, she wants to like have her cake and eat it too or whatever. It was just, I don't know, something's wrong with David Plymer, okay? Well, it the Baltimore <laughs> Sun... <laughs> That's interesting. The Baltimore Sun, um, in their op, uh, in the January thirtieth letter to the editor, um, they did not include that uh, a blog post that announces his affinity towards your opponent, Mister Mfume, and he outright endorses him. He said, "I was proud to have Mister Cummings as my congressman. I look forward to Mister Mfume continuing the legacy of having the very best people." Maryland has to offer, and he goes on. And, I don't think that he's a 7th District resident. Um, he lives in Catonsville. Oh, I was in Catonsville? Okay. Yeah, that's what that's what is listed on the Baltimore Sun. So, because uh, he was the county exec, or I don't know, he was a county government lawyer for what, I don't know, I didn't think it was Catonsville. But we'll, I'll, I'll look into it. I'm, he's a semi-retired I'm lawyer and a part-time writer who lives in Catonsville, Maryland, and after me a whole bunch of times about nothing he's like attacked me on twitter huh. he's come after me about the rift between myself and solicitor andre davis i don't think i know oh, another thing he's come after me about police reform because he thinks he has all the answers and he doesn't understand why i haven't implemented his ideas which he's never talked to me or sent them to me before well <laughs> in, in speaking of andre davis uh, an article was was written yesterday by Luke Broadwater in the Baltimore Sun, and the headline is, Progressive Groups Hope to Rally Voters to Put State Senator Jill P. Carter of Baltimore in Congress. And he, Luke wrote about uh, your conflict with City Solicitor Andre Davis, and he said, who Carter believes sought too much power over a police civilian review board that Carter wanted to use to hold officers accountable. At one point... And I'm just quoting from the article. At one point, Carter forwarded Davis's emails to Pew saying they showed how extremely pompous, disrespectful, unprofessional, and inappropriate Andre Davis was comfortable being in his interactions with me. Recently, Davis took to Facebook to criticize Carter, calling her leadership deeply flawed and accusing her of making a lot of political noise by trying to empower the board beyond its legal reach. He declined comment for the article. So what say you, Senator? Well, so many, so much to unpack there, but there's a couple of things I'd like to, to mention. Please. One, I, I feel it's so difficult in life when you are in opposition with someone of great prominence and deeply, highly respected. And dare I say, let that person happen to be a man who happens to be prominent and highly respected because there's an imbalance of perception of, of uh, and, and power in the situation. And so basically... I don't really agree with. I, I, there's so much I can say, but I'll try to condense it to and make it you sure. know, understandable. Great. <laughs> okay, so basically, Andre Davis is a very well-respected man who achieved the level of being a judge on the second highest court in the country, uh, federal appellate court, and so he's highly respected. He's very prominent, and so when he says something, people are inclined to believe him. I just want to be clear that I too was extremely excited at the idea of him coming to Baltimore and becoming city solicitor. But shortly after he was in the position, 
and I had a very first meeting with him, it was clear to me that, um, you know, he wasn't really amenable to any ideas that I might have that were not 100% in sync with his or limited to uh, his scope or his view of the maximum that we could achieve with uh, civilian oversight. Hmm. And so basically, I mean, I went about the business of doing the job that I was hired to do. And um, Mayor Pugh had asked me to um, uh, keep my job as city, uh, as a director of civil rights and, and asked me to run for Senate. It was not my idea to run for Senate and keep the job. She she told me that I really needed to run for the Senate because um, it was important that, you know, I uh, I was one of the only people that could win and it was important to do and, and I agreed with her, but I made it clear that I wanted to keep the job. There is no uh, ethical violation for me um, having the job and becoming a senator. In fact, the ethics law clearly says that um, any person that is in a position in local, state, or federal government and is either appointed or elected to the legislature, um, they are grandfathered into their job. But what they can't do is they can't um, be a senator and then, you know, be a, receive an appointment to a, a position like that, a directorship or something. But in, even further than that, so there's other, like, lawyers that even looked into it further and found out that because I was a director of a specific agency within local government, right. it wouldn't even apply to me. <laughs> so all of this information was presented um, to the mayor and to Andre Davis now. Andre Davis never once wrote an opinion at all. Okay, there was no legal opinion. And so I simply asked him, because when a solicitor writes an opinion, when the law department writes an opinion, it's supposed to be a response to a request. They don't just usually opine about something. It's like the mayor would say, uh, I need your opinion about this, just like we do with the attorney general. So basically, he refused to ever produce this. It's never been seen. Okay, there's, there's, no, there's no opinion. And the reason that becomes important is he told me that I had to step down um, from my job as city solicitor. And he did this. Um, at the time, I felt it was in defiance to what the mayor wanted, but you know, maybe not. I don't know now. But at any rate, this also happened on the heels of a highly publicized decision that the C Civilian Review Board made, which was that um, in the case of Keith Davis, the officers having shot at Mr. Davis 44 times with no evidence that he was holding a gun was excessive force. Hmm. And Kelly Davis, who's been very, very adamant about, you know, informing the public about what's going on with her husband, um, decided to hold a press conference. That was thing one that disturbed Andre Davis. The second thing was that um, he then came to the Civilian Review Board and attempted to impose uh, a highly uh, oppressive, restrictive confidentiality agreement. And I'll, I'll wrap this up soon. So the statute, the CRB, the statute that created the Civilian Review Board, simply says that in these five types of cases that fall within our, the CRB's jurisdiction, the Baltimore Police Department must send its investigatory files over to the CRB for review. It's, it's mandated. It's not dis discretionary. And so... Andre Davis decided that he didn't like what happened with the Kelly Davis situation, but the CRB had violated no confidentiality. And so he was going to force this confidentiality agreement on everyone. And we disagreed. And then Andre Davis decided to direct the Baltimore Police Department to stop sending the CRB files. We filed a lawsuit. And because we were right, he then decided to withdraw 
um, his restriction and sent the files. And so that's the whole story. Okay. <laughs> well, that's that sums it up, and it <laughs> and and that's uh, that would take up an entire Baltimore City or Baltimore uh, Sun article. Hey, Senator, look, you um you said in your uh, in, in a recent article that you wanted to push for a national gun registry and the Trump administration's cruel and inhumane policies against immigrants at the southern U.S. border. And then you would support Elijah Cummings's bill to provide $100 billion over 10 years to fight the opioid epidemic. Also, you plan to introduce state-level Medicare for all legislation. Let me ask you about the, the national gun registry. That's an issue that clearly is going to bother some of those Second Amendment activists, and they're going to probably push back on that. What does that mean? What is a national gun registry, and how would that work? Well, just that we would have, um, just like we have registries for we have registries for a lot of things, but um, just that anyone that would legally own a gun, that we would be able to identify that person. Um, that's all. Okay, so I mean, it's like it's like having a license to drive a car. A, a, a two thousand, three thousand pound vehicle requires us to register with the state, um, and of course, that's not a constant. We don't have a constitutional right to own a car, but uh, I would imagine some uh, Second Amendment folks and some uh, maybe some constitutional arguments to say you're going to put us on a national gun registry to come after us. Uh, and I, I don't. So I don't think I want to be clear that I don't think that's even close to a a robust solution or comprehensive solution to gun violence at all. Um, there are two tiers of 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 of, of gun violence and, and issues and how to fix it. Okay, one of them is that national kind of issue for those people that are legally in. In, or at least initially legally in possession of guns and then do, you know, terrible things like do mass shootings or mm-hmm. those people that may loan, you know, initially the gun was legally possessed and they loan it to someone or maybe it's stolen and the theft is not reported. That's a category that we have to deal with. And those are loopholes that can easily be closed. But the part that really bothers me that no one ever talks about is the fact that there's a mass influx of illegal guns into areas such as Baltimore City and the solution by most um, legislators and politicians seems to be this concept of well every time somebody's in the possession of an illegal gun we're going to lock them up we're going to give them a, a, a mandatory sentence I mean maybe that's one solution I don't know I don't think that is I think that we have to look at and and track um, the origin of all of these illegal guns and how they're getting into the city and we have to hold accountable, whether it's manufacturers, distributors, distributors, wholesalers, whatever, accountable for all of these mass thousands of guns, for example, that are on the streets of Baltimore City illegally now. So there's a, a whole a whole gun trade that when we talk about these these other kinds of, you know, loopholes that we want to close in, in law, we really just exclude all of this. So even what I'm saying, like the National Gun Registry or some of the other things that are talked about, none of that to me is a solution for Baltimore City. Just, just, And so last year in the legislature, I did pass a um, bill that is a step. Nothing's a solution, a whole, a whole solution, but it's a step, which does require a study on every crime gun. So every gun that's found in a crime now, there's a requirement that that gun be traced to its original source. Um, and I think that's a step in finding out 
how so many thousands of guns are getting into the illegal guns are getting into the hands of people that are never going to legally possess a gun. Like that's never a plan. You know, it's the illegal possession of guns, the illegal use of illegal guns that is really, you know, ripping Baltimore apart right now. Right. That's that's exactly true. You make no bones about it where you stand on this Trump administration. I'm sure that you have been following the impeachment of President Donald J. uh, John Trump. And now the Senate is in it looks like its final stages. Breaking news came out on, I guess it was Sunday or over the weekend or at least early in the week about former National Security Advisor John Bolton's um, his his manuscript. Should John Bolton be called to testify as a witness? Why not? (laughs) Well, I, I think that Republicans are some Republicans in the Senate are are asking for that. What do you make of the current? Senate. I mean, you think he's going to be acquitted? I I don't know. I, I just don't know. Um, I don't know. Is this on the minds of voters in the seventh? Uh, some, but not. So what I find, um, as I talk to people, like older people that, um, may be retired or at home, they find it kind of interesting to watch the impeachment proceedings because they they hate Trump pretty much and they're happy that. You know, he might be getting it, you know, having this stuck to him. But um, generally, no Uh, people. There are people that are um, more concerned with, you know, their daily like quality of life issues um, and are are perturbed that they feel that, you know, there's this distraction about Trump and, you know, maybe, you know, Congress and their representatives are not focusing enough on, on their issues. Um, their issues in, in West Baltimore and East Baltimore and the like. Uh, so I would say, you know, it's split, but for the most part, it's not, it's not, here's what I'd say. It's not the priority of the seventh district. However, getting Trump out, meaning having a Democrat win this election, that is the priority of the seventh district for the most part. You endorse Senator Bernie Sanders. You are, you, you, clearly have a, a favorite in this presidential contest. Pre, pre, uh, Senator Sanders has been steadily rising. His poll numbers look good in Iowa and New Hampshire and in many other states, in Texas, even California. So do you think Democrats will come together who, no matter who the nominee is, whether it be Sanders or Warren or Biden or Buttigieg or maybe even Bloomberg, do you oh, think? Please don't say those last ones. I got to. I <laughs> have to. Don't. I have to. These guys are running. All of them are running hard. But look, it's no doubt that San- Sanders clearly has a a similar strong grassroots organization that mirrors your own campaign. And I I don't know who's going to become the nominee. I don't think anybody does at this point. But uh, would it be tough for you to to support a, a Mike Bloomberg? Uh, yeah, it will be, be a little tough. It'd but... be tough for you. <laughs> I've committed to supporting the Democrat nominee because I do think it's more I do think that there is no Democrat that we could elect that could be worse than Donald Trump. So I'm committed to the Democrat. But I think that whoever is the nominee, it's really their job and their team and the Democratic Party is going to have to work really hard to bring the Democrats together in this country. Um, I don't think it was done well the last time. And, you know, it's really incumbent upon the leader to, to be able to get that done. I, and I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard for those of us that really want uh, major, major change. We really want major reform. We really want 
a political revolution. We really want all of the, the issues that we fight, you know, we care about. We really want the system to change and, and work for the majority of people. It's going to be extremely hard. <laughs> but I do believe it's possible. And my commitment is I will use all of my bandwidth to try to do my part. Uh, I hope that people who are listening know that just because someone's of the opposing party does not make them an enemy. How far we have come in our American politique that people of the opposing parties, whether you be a Republican or Democrat, views the the opponent as not only a political foe, but a an enemy. Isn't that nuts to you? I mean, it's just nuts. Like, we, we can reasonably disagree on policies and come up with better ideas or p- push our ideas that we believe in. But enemy? I mean, that's just nuts to me. Well, it takes a certain level of maturity uh, to, you know, get to that point where you are. I, I really quickly, you know, I started my career as a, a public defender and um, then I became a private criminal defense attorney. And I'll tell you that early in my career, when I would go into the courtroom, I would often see this, the prosecutor as like the enemy. And I would get so angry, you know, about the difference of perspective and opinion that I would I would take it personally. And I'd be like, oh, the prosecutor is like the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And, and then I also say that in my political career, I've had people in my own party that I've felt that way about. <laughs> um, it's difficult when you see people that are, are purveyors of policies that hurt people or don't care about people, uh, that's difficult to watch and not take personally. So the answer to your question is we should not. We should just, it should be about the issues and, you know, you know, what is it? You can disagree without even being disagreeable, but in practice and reality, it's difficult. Um, what do you, what, I've been following this case about Talmadge Branch and his daughter being appointed to the House of Delegates to replace uh, someone else. And it's kind of interesting how central committees have such major power in, in Maryland. Are you, are you backing the bill to support these, uh, in, or these special elections? Yeah. In fact, we passed it, uh, the past third reader on the Senate, I believe yesterday. Okay. But yeah, we're done with it over on our side, but the answer is yes. I mean, um, that's, it's, it's, it's jacked up that, you know, the, the way that the current process is, um, and I think about it because if I am fortunate to, you know, win this congressional election, it's going to become an issue in my own district. Why is that? Oh, well, the Central Committee, you know, the issues with the Central Committee being able to select the next senator. Oh, OK. That makes sense. Well, <laughs> well, that makes sense. Yeah, right. So, I mean, you're you're moving on in into Congress. There, Somebody's going to have to be to be selected. What happens next? You win the say if you win the d- February fourth nomination, win. So then you'd have to go on to the April, correct? You'd have to yes. And, and so I'd have to win two elections in April. On, on April twenty eighth, I'd have to win the general against the Republican nominee from the special, and I'd have to win the regular primary. Both are on April twenty eighth. That sounds complicated. It may be a little complicated, but I don't think it's going to be that complicated forever wins because people are just going to see the name and just vote for that name, I think. So the soonest that you could be sworn in is April 29th. That would be the soonest. Okay. Well, uh, it's certainly... And that would be wonderful if that that happened. You know, (laughs) um, I I hope... Well, I don't know. I mean, what I suspect and think is that um, if 
if the race is close in the uh, February on Tuesday, I suspect that those people that are in the top tier will continue on regardless of the winner. Makes sense. It but makes total sense. I would sense. think that most of the ones that may um, not do quite as well would likely not continue to April. But you know, who knows? Well, look. What do you What do you plan on doing? If I'm in the top tier, I'm going to definitely continue. Um, if I'm not, I'll have to reevaluate. You know, how feasible is it? So, if you came in, let's say you, if you don't outright win it, but if you come in fifth or sixth, does that mean that you're going to reevaluate what you're going to do next? Oh, I definitely have to reevaluate it because it would be very difficult to go into the support needed to win in April. Well, that's fair. I, mean, I already struggle for raising money, so, you know, it would be hard. Um, <laughs> speaking of raising money, how much money have you raised? I'm not quite sure, but I will tell you this. I truly felt that whatever was reported in my first report was slightly lower than my calculations. Huh. So I'm going to guess that by this point, maybe I'm up to about 75, but... You know, that's what I think. That's speculation. That's this is because I every time I get a pledge or I get a check, I just jot it down, and that's what I have that I recorded. But well, I actually thought I had more than I did at the first report. And to be honest with you, I understand that you know there's other candidates. You know, the professor self-funded, and he this, this is what I thought was a little crazy. The professor self-funded um, with um, six hundred thousand and only had two hundred thousand left, which is Means he spent four hundred thousand, which is a lot of money to have spent, um, and still have very low name recognition. The um, the uh, wife of Elijah Cummings raised over two hundred thousand, and at the report only reported having about sixty eight, which I thought was also pretty amazing that she had, you know spent so much money. That's quite a um, burn rate, right? And then some of those of us that you know had raised less money had spent less money. Um, and so that seemed a little bit more reasonable, but I'll tell you that as a person that's never been, you know, a champion fundraiser necessarily, um, it's been hard. And, um, even though I may not have a whole lot of money that impresses other people, it's been pretty, pretty impressive to me because I know the work that has gone into it, you know? Sure. And I keep hearing from different sources that, the Democratic National Committee is silently raising money for uh, your opponent, uh, Kwaise and Fume. So that's uh, that would that, be. I believe it. I believe that's probably true, and it's just so troubling because it just speaks to the Democratic Party not ever learning. They, it's like, will they ever understand that um, as long as they continue to push this establishment Democrat, this this puppet puppeteer relationship with people that it supports um there's going to continue to be a major divide in this party so it would be nice if they could e stay out of it or actually you know take a take a different position and actually like support a more progressive agenda and and candidates fair enough senator carter i know you're busy i know that you have much work to do you spent some time with a minor detail podcast tonight i always appreciate your time um why don't you go ahead and plug your website Okay, so please find me at jillcarterforcongress.com. That's my website, and uh, you can see the policy positions, and you can email or ask questions. We are on social media, as you've talked about. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jill, Carter, uh, Jill, Carter, Jill P. Carter for Congress on Facebook. My Twitter handle is my, just my name, Jill P. Carter, and we're on Instagram as well, Jill Carter for Congress. And um, 
we are looking for, if anyone, you know, wants to support our campaign, we definitely are looking for more volunteers for Tuesday Election Day because uh, there are 315 polling places in the 7th District. Oh, gosh, that's a lot. So getting people (laughs) out to vote, you're going to be busy on the 4th. And this weekend, I'm sure you're moving into the the final... The final countdown of this uh, this first round, at least. So, my we are, but I'll tell you, I'm at a point where I almost want to put in legislation, and it's sort of a joke, just you know, to limit forums. Because let me just tell you, <laughs> I was I was so excited about the idea of having this last weekend to be in the streets to meet to meet and reach voters, right? Yeah. And on Saturday, we've got once again the whole day is. Build up with forums. What uh, by the time the last forum is over, it's going to be dark outside, like getting dark. So we have one in Howard County that's two hours from nine thirty to eleven thirty, hmm. and then we have one in Baltimore City sponsored by the League of Women Voters that's one to four. Wow! So that does take away campaigning. And how, do the same people? It seems probably the same people show up to these forums. <laughs> I bet it's like all the staffers. <laughs> oh my gosh! So I know. So it's like a you know you have to make a a. a calculated decision as to whether it's worth it Uh but you don't want to not be there but you know it's a struggle because first of all let's be clear when you have 14 or 15 people mostly saying similar things that sound good to people and at this point everybody's rehearsed their spiel right we've all got you know good things to say i mean you even if there's a somewhat one or two people in the audience that are not committed it's difficult for them to distinguish at this point because you know everybody sounds good well, I mean, out of, out of 14 or 15 people, at least five or six people sound pretty good. Well, that's fair. Uh, Senator Carter, thank you for coming on and talking to me again. I'm sure I'll see you before. Maybe I'll see you before this primary uh, on the 4th, a special election. But uh, I, I'm looking forward to see how this race turns out. And uh, best of luck to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure being on your show and, you know, getting to know you a little bit. And whatever happens, the outcome of this election I won't be a stranger. Well, don't be a stranger at all. Thank you, Senator, and uh, have fun tonight, whatever you're doing. (laughs) Thanks so much. (laughs) You bet. Bye-bye.